Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Or I should say a very warm welcome, but I use the word mostly. Um, we'll try to get the room as cool as possible and keep the lights down, so I hope it's better with you. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's a very special evening for me. Um, first, having Patrick here, and I, I feel there's a lot of you that are very interested uh, to hear what Patrick has to say. So, less of me, the better. Would you please welcome Simon Taylor and Patrick Tomlow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a great privilege, isn't it, for the Brooklyn Society to be joined by one of the great Formula One names of the 1970s and 1980s. Patrick Tombay, a Grand Prix winner for Ferrari, veteran of nine Formula One seasons, 114 Grand Prix, not only with Ferrari, but also with McLaren, Renault, Ligier, Ensign, Theodore and Haas. In his French homeland, and particularly also in Italy because of the Ferrari connection, he's a motor racing hero. Yet maybe because he's always been such a modest, easygoing guy who has never boasted of his achievements, he's almost unknown, or comparatively unknown, outside the true enthusiasts in this country. Well, that's now been put right by the publication of this magnificent new book, which he has written in collaboration with Massimo Burbi, primarily about his two charismatic seasons with Ferrari. Patrick, two years with Ferrari, two years with McLaren, uh, two years with Renault, uh, as well as time with three other Formula One teams. There's so much we could talk about, and we've only just got this evening, but let's just have a brief word about how you started. Uh, you excelled as a youngster at all sorts of sports. Um, I think you were in the French downhill skiing team, national team. Then you won the Pilot Elf Young Driver Scholarship. You did three seasons in Formula 2. And then you ended up in America, driving the big Group 7 Big Banger cars. You dominated the Can-Am series. You ended up Can-Am champion. So let's just briefly start there. Those great, big, thundering Can-Am cars. Did they teach you any lessons that you were able to use in Formula 1? Yes, yes, uh, of course. But before that, Simon, I would like to thank you for accepting to have this, to operate, to operate me. I would like to thank you. <laughs> I would like to thank Eric, Eleanor, Jeremy, Mark Hughes from Evo Commission, who have produced this, uh, this baby. And this baby uh, is everything that I felt, all the experience that I received. Uh, in my recent career, everything is bound to Ferrari. And this is a book that you have really, I mean, this isn't a ghost-written uh, book that was just churned out and you just signed the, uh, the, the, the pages. You actually really worked on this book yourself. It was <coughs> written by four hands, back and forth with the emails in the evening. 
financed by the Ferrari mm. drivers and also Polo he became a, a keen, keen fan. Mm. And he had a talent for writing. Mm. And the photographs, I think, all came from your good friend in France, Bernard Cahier, one of the great photographers, and his library now run by his son, Paul Henri Cahier. Yes, yes. He did a lot of pictures, a lot of different pictures from different photographs. But uh, I wanted to be with Bernard Cahier because it was very important to my career. Yeah, he helped you a lot in the early days. Especially with Carla. <coughs> well, going back to that career, yes. um, I really first became aware of your achievements in, in the can series. And it's not often that people go from the can series into Formula One. It's kind of not the normal progression. So what was it like then when you went into a small Formula One team back in the 1970s when Formula One was so different from how it is now. Times are what they are when you, when you live an exciting life like this. You have opportunities, they open up, you take them, mm. and uh, you are in charge. Mm. But uh, the man up there is. Uh, running the show and the destiny of people. Mm. I ended up uh, having the two programs, the Canal and the Formula One team with the Einstein. It just happened to, it was not something that was planned. But you're very aware of modern Formula One because of course yeah. you work with French television, you, cut, you are a pundit about um, current, what is it? Pundit. <laughs> it's a kind of English word, which means this is a guy who knows more than he's meant to know. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Reuse consulting. But I'm fascinated by the era of Formula One that you came into, because you were with this tiny little team with Theodore Ensign. Yeah. You were just their only driver. They had, what, one van towing the car from race to race. Yeah. Tiny budget. Yes. Did you have to bring money or did they pay you? No, I actually uh, bought in money. I bought, bought about 80,000 US dollars. When I was win winning in Canada, I was bringing into the, the operation. And to tell you how much the team needed um, technical advisors, money, I had in Monza to borrow gear, field gear from uh, McLaren. And uh, give it back to them after the race. <laughs> <laughs> because we were very fast on down the straight and we did the longer field gear. Uh, and we didn't have it. Uh, McLaren, do you think today they would lend uh, to uh, a smaller team to a gear? No, no, no. I don't think that would happen in Formula One today. No. But you must have um, impressed McLaren uh, with what you were doing with the Theodore inside because. Not you only McLaren. What? No, I'm impressed also in the Ferrari. Well, of course, but we'll come to that in a minute. But you so then it's saw... in the book. It's all in the book. <laughs> but you did go to McLaren for two, to two, for two seasons. Yeah. Um, and your teammate was, of course, James Hunt. Um, it was after James had won the World Championship. And some people felt that James's motivation 
was perhaps not what it was. It was getting towards the end of his career. Was that your impression? No, no. You know, uh, McLean was sold and pepper with James and with John John Watson. You can imagine two different blocks. Okay. Yeah. James had different values, yeah. a different interests, different motivation. He would, was not probably the best teammate I should have had coming out of my rookie season, half rookie season. I was with a very glamorous guy yeah. who was uh, who was very very into ladies. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. Yeah, you put it very well. <laughs> yeah, so did he. <laughs> so James, James was quite a good teammate in those uh, departments. Very good, very good. But, yeah, the department, yes. <laughs> but uh, for the racing as well, maybe yeah. now, okay, we won the World Championship in 76. 77 was a bit off with the McLaren, but Teddy May at the time really sold me the project for 78 to 79. And uh, I believed him, and I had a contract with Brazil. Just signed him on the top of the line, yeah. how many dollars? And uh, one choice. So you could have gone to Ferrari much earlier. Yes. It was right, right after the Austrian Grand Prix, double eight, where I ran with McLaren, with the Ferraris, with the Ensign. Yeah. And then drove uh, to the Finnish is, is it true that Enzo Ferrari said to you subsequently, you made the wrong choice, you should have come to me, and you would have been world champion? He said that, yes, exactly. He said that I came, I came after Monza to meet him, mm -hmm. telling that I was sorry, not for Berlin, but he had signed Gio, that uh, he would be interested in a young driver. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spoke to uh, in French, I didn't know Italian too much. Bogieri was there mm -hmm. to translate, and in the end he said in French, So he pretended not to understand French, no, no. but of course he spoke French. Okay. He, was <laughs> he spoke very good French. He was a wily old man. A lot better than my Italian, but he needed to forget to translate for the official part. And of course he would have been wearing those dark glasses, so oh, he couldn't yes. quite work out what he was no. thinking. Uh, terrified. Yeah. Yes. Well, we can now move on to your time at Ferrari, which is of course the main thrust of that book. Um, you had your two years with McLaren. Um, you would, you, after, McLa after McLaren, you went back to America, won another Can-Am championship. You then came back uh, to Formula One with Teddy Yip again, and then with Guy Ligier. And then I think after uh, Ligier, you were, you were very close to Gérard Ducarouge. He got fired because Guy Ligier had one of his bad tempers. And then, mm. is that wrong? Well, Ligi had bad temper, yes. He did. That's right. Yeah. More than that. <laughs> <laughs> if you 
But then after, uh, after I got, I got, I got the, uh, went to the French Grand Prix. We had problems with the transmissions. Then we came to the British Grand Prix, and I was uh, in front of Lafitte in the British Grand Prix again. And uh, Lafitte Group, Lafitte and Jabouille, uh didn't like that. So you were out of Formula One abruptly, and is it right that at that point you said, okay, no more Formula One, I'm going to do something else. I think you had a family by then, and you went off to America. I think you were in Hawaii when, on the 9th of May, 1982, you got a phone call. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I don't know if you remember where you were on the 9th of May, but uh, I do, uh, the office of my father-in-law, and uh, it's uh, Pironi calling from, uh, from uh, Italy and uh, announced the death of Phil. This is, uh, I heard the news before that, so I was prepared. been a particularly good friend of yours from all your racing in Italy, uh, I'm sorry, in, in America. You, you and Gilles were really mates, weren't you? Yes. Uh, like it does happen sometimes when you have uh, you encounter somebody that is, you can trust, mm. that you can share things with. Uh, he had a young family. I was uh, around the same kind of objectives and motivations. This was very, very strange feeling. Mm. So you were then in an extraordinary position because your good friend had been killed. Um, there had been a lot of talk um, before he was killed about the clash of personalities between Fielder <coughs> and his teammate Didier Peroni. And then you found yourself sitting in a Formula 1 Ferrari, wearing the number 10, 27, it's very significant, but that's the name of the book, 27, which of course, up to then, had been totally connected with Gilles Villeneuve. You were Didier Peroni's teammate, and you were in Gilles Villeneuve's own car. Was that a, a mixture of emotions for you? Responsibilities of 
times of living in a parish. Yeah. Yeah. Can I express it? No, I think you explained it well, because what I always think is so extraordinary, I mean, that whole season, if it had been a plot of a Hollywood movie, you'd think this is ridiculous. 82. Hmm? 82. 82, forgive me. Yeah, yeah. Because Gilles' death, you taking over his ride, your fourth race, the German Grand Prix, on the Saturday afternoon in qualifying, your teammate, Didier Peroni, has the most dreadful accident, which ended his career. And if I remember rightly, on that Saturday night, there was some talk about whether he was going to survive. And you had to start the race in the one remaining Ferrari at Hockenheim on Sunday. Was that particularly it was the name of the game, because the show was gone. Uh, Ferrari uh, only had one car left, and the job had to be done. Uh, Franco Levy, as you remember, the, the head of Moscow of uh, the old man, yeah. came to me and said, uh, you're on your own now. Kid, you are number one in this team. You are, you're not the This is a very modest way of saying that he won the race. <laughs> I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be working, uh, as I was in those days, for the BBC, covering that race. And that extraordinary period from the death of Gilles Villeneuve at Zolder all the way up to your victory in the sole surviving Ferrari at Hockenheim. That was three of the most extraordinary months, I think, in Formula One, certainly of all the races that I watched. Well, until then, and then we have 83 season coming. Formula One, I mean, perhaps I can just intersperse uh, a question I was going to come to later. With the um, rosy glasses of hindsight, Formula One, when we think about it in the 1970s and the 
1980s. It seemed to be uh, an unadulteratedly wonderful period. You now watch every Grand Prix professionally for television. Do you think that there is the magic in Formula One now than there was then, or do you think it's a different type of magic? How successful do you think Formula One is today? Well, <coughs> tricky question. I'll try to give you my best uh, answer. I think today Bianchi is a freak accident, but there's not enough, there's not been enough. It's not going to say that you should have, but uh, uh, there's not been casualties at the time of racing, I, no, I don't like we were racing. We lost so many buddies, so many friends from accidents. But yet the, the thing, the sport has a different value, different significations, uh, yeah, importance. I would go out uh, from my house on the first day to go to the track, my daughter would say, Daddy, when are you coming back? You know you're going to come back. My mechanic, when you uh, read it, used to be Gilles Mechanics, yeah. Carlos Caramelli. Yes. He says in the book, every time he goes out, I didn't know if he was going to come back from that run of uh, testing run that we were there. So this gave uh, what we did a different flavor, different meanings to the engagement that we were doing. Today, I've been watching and commentating and analyzing drivers, the technology through the times, situation, financial situation of Formula One. We had another episode lately with Bernie, managing to resell what he has sold several times before for six billion euros, eight and eight point five. I, I, I think it was billion. nine billion euros, but what they were quite sure of is how much of that was, uh, was actually Bernie's, yeah. Hmm? Nobody quite knows how much of the billions yeah. actually will go into Mr. Eccleston's pocket. Ah. That is not clear. No. That's, a, that's a price that uh, Mr. Paul Marono uh, bought. Okay, it's an American company, Liberty Media, I think. And they want to try to give that sense to Formula One. Mm. Pleasure of excitement, a show, because mm. um, now, even behind the microphone, sometimes I fall asleep. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, it does sound uh, a bit I think at, um, uh, at Monza, um, a well-known journalist, who shall be named as Stolby, he was covering the race at Monza, and he said in the media center, where you always had all the journalists excitedly working away, wiping the sweat from their brows. Three of them actually were asleep over their computers. 
So something is not right with Formula One. <laughs> I want to take you back. I mean, if, you, if I'm sitting in the in the Mercedes of uh, Lewis Hamilton, I mean, all things are all right. Not so much at Monza, but uh, well, let let's go back to to your time um, at Ferrari. We we started to talk about Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. Um, obviously, he did get e even in those late years in his life, he did get close to his drivers, didn't he? I mean, how often, as a Ferrari works driver, did you actually go into Ferrari's little sanctum and actually talk to him? Very, very casually. Uh, every time you, you would come to the track, you'd have to do that. So, take and say hello, go to the vestiaire the, on the right-hand side. Does not shambles like it is today, because today a German Panzer division came by <laughs> and said, listen that, I want this for my, my room, this is my fitness, this is my... So, it was very respect, a lot of respect, and uh, you'd see him if he was there, he was not sick. Every time you test, he was there, looking and listening to the time. He had TV, the TV screen, with a camera on the board before the board. They didn't have, didn't have the technology that uh, is today. But he was following everything, and every time he had a, So even though he didn't actually come to the races, in the testing, he was there, he knew exactly what was going on. Extraordinary. What about inside Ferrari? Um, we've, been, we've been told about um, Ferrari politics and all the kind of roaring that was going on, but talking, for example, to Phil Hill about an earlier time at Ferrari, he said it wasn't like that at all. It was a happy family, we all worked together. That was in the early 60s. How was it for you? Phil Hill, I should say that. Phil Hill said it was a happy family. Oh, yes, it was, a, it was a, I don't know if you could call it a happy family, but it was a good working relationship, strong team. The only team that I really felt uh, confidence Mechanics were very, very professional, very friendly. Uh, you can see some pictures of uh, well, well, ongoing parties at, at the end of the day. They didn't agree with the management. Um, I don't know, it's very special, very different than in the British team or the French team. It was an Italian. Yeah. The, the, the statistics show 
you, you were actually with Ferrari for one and a half seasons because you came in after Gilles' death halfway through the season. Um, your Ferrari wasn't always reliable. In that period, I think it got you to the end of the race 15 times, and out of those 15 times, you were on the podium eight times, with, of course, your two, two victories. You didn't read the book. Huh? You didn't read the book. Well, of course I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we've mentioned that extraordinary day at Hockenheim, which must have been a kind of bittersweet victory for you, really. In the rest of your time at Ferrari, what are the other races that really stand out for you? What were your favourites? Mm -hmm. Your favourite races in your time at Ferrari, apart from oh. Hockenheim? Into third race, regional grid, first podium. Suddenly you come from zero, where then I was. Who I was? Who was I? Uh, no loss. I could uh, actually come back. I got Italian press saying, Why did you pick Tampé? Should have picked uh, Jones. So tell us about your departure from Ferrari. How did that come about? I mean, I know it's in the book, but you can <laughs> mention it briefly now. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to read it. <laughs> but but that no, was a sad time. Yes. So then, Italian uh, win. Yeah, that was about politics. You win. All right. Thank you. Okay. We ought also, although this is not in the book, because the book concentrates on Ferrari, we ought to talk about your two years at Renault, because there you were a French racing driver in a, the top French team. But your teammate was uh, Ross Beef. It was Derek Warwick. Yes. Uh, what was it like racing with Derek? Good. Very good. On and off track, excellent. Yeah. One of the best teammates have very straightforward, honest, good man. Still is, I think, the president yeah, of the RBC. So, yeah. Derek, uh, hello. Yeah. Wish you well. I know you also had a bad physical situation. You recovered from that? Yeah, he had some problems, but he was very brave. And he's, uh, I saw him recently. He seems fine. Yes, yeah. I saw him also in uh, the One Drivers Club. Yes, he was a good. He's a good. He was a good teammate. I mean, yeah. Were the pressures being a Frenchman in a French team? Did the media, the French media, put a lot of pressure on you? They wanted to see French victories. They did put a lot of pressure on on us. Uh, 
and especially when the results were good, match round three, round four, did it put the pressure? With Bernard Giroud from the television coming to ask you just before you go into the... Well, we were not used to that yet. Uh, now they are more convenient. They like to talk to the press on the, on the grid. Mm -hmm. And uh, they should actually do that more and more. They should be more involved with their... That's what Formula One should be doing. Be more human, closer to the public. Back to it, what they want. Yeah. And uh, going back to your question, the pressure was heavy, different, different than Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like it as well so much. No, I, you weren't so happy at Renault. Mm. Mm. By contrast, um, I always think one of the great things in Formula One, and it's still the case now is you go to Monza and the crowd are shouting for Ferrari. In the cockpit, you must have been aware of that. Yes. Sort of waves coming from the public enclosures cheering on Ferrari in Italy. If you look at Monza, it's, the coverage is uh, excellent. It's not a long race, now in 15 minutes. The fastest average. And uh, if you're in the top three, you go to not to a trophy podium, and it's just something unbelievable. Mm. It's just a crowd running on the road. Yes. Mm. When you go out the first time, first time lap, you just have to wave at the crowd. They're all well, waving back the flags, and mm. they're all dressed up in red. Mm. Even before Schumacher, yeah. Yeah. we had that. The crowd is. just briefly mention your final season in Formula One, which promised so much because you had a team of really strong technicians. It looked as though it was going to be a dream, dream team. A dream team, yeah. So why did Haas not work? Financial. It was going to be on a program with Beatrice, which could be a long program, to promote this American team with Adrian Newey, for engineer, Ross Brown, Neil Otway, uh, Alistair Cowell, Tyler Alexander, all good guys, excellent guys, top guys, just prove themselves to be excellent athletes. And uh, Carlos arrived at uh, race of the season, the guys I have a problem. What's that? You've lost the sponsors for next year. Beatrice uh, is out. What do I do? I have two, uh, two choices. I do a financial decision or I do a um, sentimental decision. So Carl, coming from where you come, you probably have to take a financial decision. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we've got 
uh, Steve somewhere with the microphone. So I'm sure some of you have got some questions for Patrick. I've still got some He's questions, but I don't want to hog uh, all the questions. So Steve is there with yeah, the microphone. Oh, he's more open to you. So if anyone's got any questions, we have a handheld mic, because it can be quite difficult to hear in it. So if you can give... Assistant has it there, so do we have any questions? Give so me a big wave. Yes, yeah. there's a question. Let's, let's start there. cameras also yeah. and a lot of uh, other safety safety things mm -hmm. such as the feet behind the axle the front axle so to save the, the legs from being torn apart um, change a lot I mean Formula One changes from one weekend to the next because they have to adapt to the track and they have development and they carry on a development that is if they have the finance is programmed for the season. So it's just a means of uh, doing your development program with what controls the teams. The capacity of having enough people to actually work on two different programs. And sometimes you see the engineers are not coming to the other races because they're already working on the, the next, uh, next year's car. So this does that has changed a lot. Unfortunately, uh, well, that's not, that's, that is not true. I, I did drive a car with a paddle shift in the uh, series that we had for the older, the older drivers. But uh, you had to, Ferrari gearbox was very good. Best gearbox I have ever experienced. Manually, precise shifting quickly, uh, the whole world built the way it was built, Frank Herschel was very efficient. So I think I left when Mansell started with the Ferrari paddle shift, and I could see that uh, in uh, Hungary, Budapest, that was making a big difference. Because all through the S's, you have to, uh, you could steer it and shift gears at the same time. I think that's uh, the most important uh, change. What about turbocharging now? Uh, turbocharging, yes. I thought we put a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> a big piece. <laughs> I hate it. Because they have to control uh, the the power that we used, obviously, they used, uh, used a lot, and the more it was an escalation. And so they decided to control, start controlling the situation by reducing the amount of fuel. And with Renault, if I ran out of fuel, I don't know, four or five times that season, 
emotions at, at winning at Hockenheim. Uh, first win is a special. And because of the situation previous year between Didier and Gilles oh, yes, I see. racing together, yeah. and Didier not following the orders yeah. he was given to not fight yeah. when Gilles was in the lead. Yeah. Gilles has always been a, a, a sharp, honest guy. He's Jody Shekhar in 79. He had lost the championship. He had followed to the journey to the finish line yeah. many times without trying to overtake him when he was leading the race. He 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 was an honourable an honourable man. Yes. He followed the yes. he followed the plan. He had respect for whereas Didier didn't? No. <coughs> Didier did not. Uh, Didier was uh, just wanted to win so bad and was prepared to do what he did, mm. which is something that you shouldn't I suppose it's an unfair question, but do you think that the, the conflict between Didier and Gilles at that final qualifying on the Saturday at Zolder, uh, do you think that Gilles was trying to beat Didier's time? I think Didier had just gone a bit quicker. Uh, do you think that that meant that Gilles perhaps dug a bit too deep? Well, it's, it's an unfair question. All right, it's perhaps not, it's a fair question. It's a fair question. 
I personally think uh, that uh, GL was trying to go for, for try to improve the lab that DB had done, which was yeah. improving the type of data. Yeah. Yes. But that doesn't mean that why and the accident of DB accident was a misunderstanding between Yorkian Mass yeah. and, and GL. Mm -hmm. Just a pure lack of it was fate, really. Same, yes. Can we have any, uh, any other questions? questions then? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, we've got one there. The young lady at the end of the striped off. Tim, you'll have to be quick. No talking on the Oh, no, no, the lady works. Well, this one, we saw this chap first. Oh, okay. You're next. Yeah, young lady. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever speak to me yet? Did you talk to Didier? No. No. No, why why should I? I knew, I knew. I knew, I knew. So there's no. nothing to say. Was that a motivator to try and meet him as much as you could in the short time that you had as his teammate? I knew him for a long time. I've known him for for a long time. I was on the jury at the pilot there, and we go through the ranks together. And uh, I knew exactly how he was thinking and how he and what he, I knew that uh, he had cheated Jill. He had cheated Jill. When you raced against him in Formula 2, yes. was, he, was he difficult then? No, he was, he was on the field, but uh, he was uh, our racer. But you don't find yourself in this kind of situation when you're two more yeah. ranks. But the relationship was a, a strong, hard, competitive. He was like that. Also, no, I mean it privately. So. Okay, all right. We have another question down here. So, and then, sir, behind the pillar, you're next. Thank you very much for being here tonight. It's a privilege to actually meet you. Um, Thank you. What I want to ask you, there's a lot said about who's the greatest Formula One driver or racing driver. I'm not going to ask you that. But what I would like to ask you is, from your experience as a lover of sport, and as a really successful and amazing driver, and also as a commentator, who would you list as your three or five favourite drivers from your personal choice? Ones that you enjoy to actually see race and, and that you do with? Mm -hmm. Very good, thank you. Good question. Yes, yes uh, Mr. Eccleston just uh, made some big declaration. <laughs> you must have read that. In his opinion, Alan Post is the best of all the Legion drivers of all that Formula One has ever produced. Do you know if you agree, Simon? 
drivers have dominated their period. Mm. I mean, there have been these exceptional people, haven't there? There have been Fangio, Clark, uh, the super talents, yeah. Who was the super talent in your day? Super talent uh, was... I was not super talent. There wasn't one driver who stood head and shoulders above. No. Uh, I think it was all management and decision making situation of track. You had to put yourself in the right environment, you had to place yourself, have a good relationship with everybody. And the best that I on and off the track, my opinion was there and Senna. Records of pole position, things that have been beaten by Michael Schumacher afterwards. But you can't compare the text, the context was not the same. So, super talents, say that, obviously. Today, super talent, Gilles. Today, Super Dance, in Formula One, there is a second one. And Nico, which is a guy that I really like, but he only is a talent. He had to give five stars to the he gave four stars to, to Rosberg. The interesting thing about Senna, and, and perhaps this was an inevitable part of the fact that he was head and shoulders above everybody else, was that his will to win was so total that occasionally it led him into places which were extremely controversial, like the collision with Prost um, in Japan, for example. He maybe wanted sometimes too much to win and was guilty of bad judgment. No, I think he was going for a fair judgment. judgment. He was going to enforce what he felt was justice. I don't think he was being a lone ranger, but uh, <laughs> he had to show his way, and yeah. this is the yeah. way it should be, and I'm going to get him to fix it. Yeah. I think he was, uh, overall, very smart. Yeah, certainly. Very fast, very fast. Maybe a physical shape not as good as uh, it could have been. He had uh, some problems there. Yeah. But 
certain differences of something technically interesting. For example, uh, in uh, Israel, looking at all the cars on the car, of all the cars that were in front of him, to know who was going to have a problem on which wheel, because uh, maybe he had different compounds and he could mix them then. So he was the sort of complete racing driver. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is another question, question behind there, Simon. Right, wherever you are, I can't see you on the lights, but I'm sure okay. I'm there somewhere. Um, after um, Didier's um, running a sporting accident, um, obviously got now drifted to the team um, what was that working with him? And did you did you learn anything new or vice versa? Or what was it like working in that short time? The question is about Andretti, who was your teammate at Ferrari um, after Pirelli's accident. Um, Mario came in because they couldn't just go after the Swiss Grand Prix in Dijon to Monza with only one car. They had to have at least two cars because they were going to finish the season with one car. But uh, since I didn't start uh, Dijon, there was some problem that maybe I could not drive it in Monza. Well, in fact, it was with one hand. This one was just shifting. And Monza with one hand is a bit of a handful. And <laughs> Very good. Yes. Didn't make it on purpose. Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> Do we have another question, ladies and gentlemen? Anyone towards the Is there an era of Formula One that you would have liked to have raced in, different from your own? Um, yes, three years ago with the V8s and uh, the Tesla, 2.5, 20,000 revs. That was good. Yeah. You could see it, you could hear it. Something but you don't have the same noise now, do you? No. That was the best. This is going to have to be the Steve, last one. Steve Cropley at the back. Steve Cropley yeah. has the last question. Where are you, Steve? Um, could you tell us which of the of all the racing cars that you've raced you enjoyed driving the most? Which car? Which car of all did you enjoy driving the most? Cars with a uh, lots of mechanical grip and no aerodynamic 
So for you, aerodynamics didn't help. Aerodynamics, maybe if we hadn't had ground effects, we hadn't had the big wings, it would be more about road grip and control. It's like in the wet, you build good drivers in the wet. They like to car control, they like to mind sliding. And, and I think to, today's cars are just uh, too aerodynamically complicated, complex. And too much of the grip comes from the aerodynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I think a new formula would be to reduce that, stay, get the front wings off. You always liked racing in the rain, didn't you? Yes. Was that because it was more about driver control, more about yes. being on the edge of grip? Yes. Mm. Yes, because that's what racing and driving is about. Maybe it went all the way back to your career as a downhill racer in skiing. Yes, probably. Brakes, carbon brakes. We're going to have to stop very soon. There's one. Um, Why well, is going somewhere? I'm not. The, the, there's one area, one part of your career which we haven't talked about, which is the racing in events like the Paris Dakar. Uh, that must have been a whole different ball game. I mean, that must have been about excitement rather than the minute car control. Uh, our friends from April, maybe the next week. Next book, okay? No, 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 it doesn't work. Paris Dakar, yes, it's a lot of. A lot of that things happening in a race like that, three weeks in the desert with a teammate, uh, with your best friend. You have to be your best friend, otherwise. Well, after three weeks, you need to be quite friendly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know straight away if it's going to work or not, like a good, good marriage. How, how many times did you do it? Eight. Eight times you were married. Yes. There's life after Formula One. In fact, people didn't know me as a, as a Formula One driver. After a while, they thought I was a rally driver. <laughs> and, and who were your best friends that you liked to have in your team? My mechanics, yeah. which was my co-driver. He used to be my mechanic in 72 when I first started. He had won two blackouts with the running match before that. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away lately. But uh, we had to share so many difficulties and many problems. We exploded the engine on, on the finish line, just like a went over engine, just died on the finish line. Yeah. So with the last kilometers of sand in the black hole. <laughs> See, 
But it was at the finish line. Finish line. Yeah. What about breaking down in the middle of the desert? That millions of stories. Lots of stories. Well, you produced this wonderful book about your Ferrari years. Maybe next there should be a book about your Paris Dakar years, because I know you wrote a lot of stories. Yes, I think so. I think there's more to tell about a race in the Paris Dakar than a race in the Renault in '85. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here is this fabulous book, which um, Eric Vernon tells me is on sale tonight at some wonderfully cheap deal, I think 50 quid. Um, Patrick is prepared to sign copies of the book, if you would like. He's very generously agreed to do that. So at this point, I think I should say via Steve. Very big thank you to Patrick, who's come from Cannes just for this event. It's wonderful to see him, and uh, we're all going to enjoy reading thank the book. I'm going to read it for a second time. I've read it once already. Patrick, thank you so much for coming and joining us at Brooklands. Patrick Tomlin. Thank you.